The Power of One is brought to you by the latest season of Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, available only on Amazon Prime Video. On April 3, 1936, Charles Lucky Luciano, one of America's most infamous and influential mobsters, was vacationing, let's say, in the picturesque resort town of Hot Springs, Arkansas. Luciano's professional activities usually kept him closer to home. He was, of course, the king of New York crime bosses. His empire ran from illegal gambling, drugs, loan sharking, and at one time bootlegging, to a foothold in the city's garbage collection, its garment trade, its trucking industry. Luciano is remembered today as a kind of founding father of American organized crime, a figure celebrated in shows such as HBO's Boardwalk Empire. There's better ways to do things. Like how? Running like a business. <laughs> and the subject of movies and documentaries. He organized organized crime. He became an equal opportunity mob boss. But his creation of a murder-for-hire ring made him one of the deadliest. Luciano became New York's top mob boss and began dramatically changing how the mob operated. But that year, Lucky Luciano had been in Sleepy Hot Springs since March, hiding out from an anti-rackets investigation that seemed to be closing in on him. And then, on April 3rd, his luck officially ran out. He was found by New York police and arrested. Within six weeks, his trial had begun. By June 7th, he was convicted of 62 counts of compulsory prostitution, a relatively small part of his business. His sentence? 30 to 50 years in a state prison. The head of the so-called commission, the mastermind of the team of assassins known as Murder, Inc., had fallen. The man credited with bringing down Charles Luciano was equally iconic. Tom Dewey's nomination at the Republican convention in Philadelphia last summer was a dramatic climax in the career of one of the outstanding public figures of the post-war period. Thomas E. Dewey is best remembered for a different victory, one that didn't actually materialize. He's the Dewey in Dewey Defeats Truman, that ill-fated headline that the Chicago Daily Tribune ran the morning after President Harry Truman won the 1948 U.S. election. In their defense, Dewey had been favored to win by a landslide. But 12 years earlier, in 1936, Dewey was a fresh-faced young special prosecutor with a formidable task. Four years later, early in Mayor LaGuardia's term, Dewey was appointed special prosecutor by the governor to war on organized crime in New York. Mr. Dewey, you have been given the most difficult task, but the opportunity of helping the people of this city. What can we do to help you? As a special prosecutor charged with cracking down on organized crime, Dewey went after one high-ranking criminal after another. But Lucky Luciano was the prize, a man whose illicit empire pulled in the equivalent of $150 million a year today. And when he was convicted, Dewey's face, with its trademark mustache, was plastered all over the papers. He won the nickname Gangbuster and a clear path to the job of governor of New York. The Luciano bust would be the launch of a celebrated public career. But a critical part of the story was overlooked, buried, and eventually forgotten over the next seven decades. Tom Dewey oversaw the anti-racket campaign, but he was not the person who, with dogged and imaginative legal work, followed a hunch, uncovered reams of evidence, and built the fateful case against Luciano. 
That was the work, mainly, of one member of his team of 20 lawyers. Dewey called them 20 against the underworld. That lawyer was Eunice Hunton Carter. She was a woman, a black woman, the granddaughter of slaves, and just three years out of law school. Lucky Luciano had survived assassination attempts and wriggled out of 25 arrests, more or less unscathed. But he was outmatched by the tenacity, sense of purpose, and astute legal mind of Eunice Carter. You are listening to The Power of One, a podcast devoted to telling the extraordinary stories of ordinary people who've changed their world and ours. I'm your host, Sarmishta Subramanian. This week, we bring you the story of an unlikely warrior who brought down a mobster. It's a tale as full of surprises and contradictions as it is of intrigue, drama, and pathos. Eunice Carter was born in segregationist Atlanta to a father born and raised in Chatham, Ontario. She ended up not only a top American prosecutor, but also a member of New York High Society. She was the state's first black assistant DA, a star political candidate for the Republican Party, she worked with the UN. Her war against Luciano was long and lonely. And then she was written out of history. But that didn't stop her from making history, too. Eunice Carter was the only one to ever connect the Lucky Luciano with any crime. And uh, she was smart, she was intelligent, she never gave up. She was instrumental to put together an investigation and to take down one of the most uh, intelligent, ruthless, and visionary mobster of the time. Lucky Luciano and his future nemesis didn't start life far apart, at least geographically speaking. He arrived from Italy with his family, settling in Lower Manhattan. That same year, 1907, she moved with hers from Atlanta to Brooklyn, just across the East River. They were only two years apart in age, making Luciano as much of a professional overachiever as Carter, albeit in a different direction. She was in her early 30s when she made her legal coup. He was not quite 30 when his criminal empire began grossing earnings of eight figures a year. Here's Antonio Nicasso, an international expert on organized crime. He's the author of 30 books on the mob, including, most recently, Business or Blood. He came to the United States from a small village in Sicily with his family. Just in a few years after his arrival in the United States, he was a leading member of the Five Point Gangs and a friend of the rising Jewish gangster, Meyer Lansky. Luciano worked his way up, to put it euphemistically. He cozied up to and eventually disposed of rivals. He was as strategic as he was brutal, establishing an opium and heroin trade that spanned continents. Lucky Luciano was intelligent, ruthless, and visionary. He transformed the American mafia from a violent criminal organization into a sophisticated global drug smuggling and money laundering empire. His greatest achievement, though, was to secure an agreement between the American and the Sicilian mafia to control one of the most profitable heroin pipeline in the late 50s. Uh, They imported opium from uh, Turkey, Lebanon, 
refined it into heroin in Italy, exported it to America, and laundered vast profit in Europe. I think we can say that Lucky Luciano was a mobster with a global vision. Luciano was Italian, but there is also something quintessentially American about his approach. He kept some of the rituals and modes of the old country, but this was a man who changed his name from Salvatore Lucania to Charlie Lucky before being dubbed Lucky Luciano. He brought to organized crime his adopted country's exuberant melting pot ethos and its worldly tendency to allow profits to trump prejudice. He was uh, the first one uh, who had the idea to put together criminals with different backgrounds. And I think that was part of his uh, vision about uh, a global empire to avoid any ethnic discrimination. In his gang, there was people with uh, Jewish background, Irish background, so many criminals. That's what uh, he decided to do when uh, many gangs stay in their own community dealing with their own countrymen. Along the way, he reshaped the landscape and built the modern mob establishment that still runs today. He was the architect of the commission, the ruling body of the American La Cosa Nostra. La Cosa Nostra, which literally translates to our thing, is the Italian mob. Luciano conceived of a so-called commission to run it. And he influenced the creation of a similar organism in Italy. And so I think he was one of the few mobsters who modernized the mafia on the both side of the ocean. He brought fundamental changes to organized crime setting up the five families to rule the New York and establish a national crime syndicate. At one point, they said that the mafia was more powerful than the general motor. But they were involved in many things, from gambling to narcotics. His use of legitimate institutions was part of what made him wildly successful and hard to apprehend. Cops, politicians, court officials, judges... They were all on the take in Luciano's New York. Prohibition was a kind of uh, great opportunity for many criminals. And what they learned during Prohibition, that uh, with the money, they can uh, buy everyone, that they can use a professional to laundry money. And so they create uh, what we can call uh, the gray area where there are so many uh, connections and collusion uh, between the underworld and the upper world. This was the city that New York's governor ordered a cleanup of in 1935. New York City, like the rest of America, was in the throes of a depression. It was awash in poverty and unemployment and mob-fueled crime. A grand jury had uncovered a rampant illegal gambling problem. There were loan sharks, bookies, people running numbers rackets out of convenience stores from the Bronx to Harlem. The district attorney wasn't doing much about it. Eventually, a special prosecutor was appointed to investigate mob crime, a young federal prosecutor named Thomas E. Dewey. Dewey hired a crack legal team of 20 lawyers to help him. The lone woman on it was Eunice Hunton Carter. 
The story of how Carter came to win that coveted job and what she did with it is told captivatingly in the 2018 book, Invisible, the forgotten story of the black woman lawyer who took down America's most powerful mobster. Its author is another brilliant legal scholar, Stephen L. Carter. He's a professor at Yale's Law School, a best-selling author, and one of America's leading public intellectuals. He also happens to be Eunice's grandson. The Huntons were originally from the South, but Eunice Hunton's grandfather, a former slave, fled America for pastoral Kent County, Ontario. Her father, William, was born and raised in Chatham. He worked in Ottawa for the government until a job with the YMCA landed his wife and him back in the South. Eunice and her brother grew up in Atlanta, in a house not far from iconic Peachtree Street. Here's Robin Lenhart, faculty director of the Center on Race, Law, and Justice at Fordham University's School of Law. At that time, we're very much in the wake still of the Civil War, of active segregation in Jim Crow in Atlanta, where she spent her early years. There's no 19th Amendment that prohibits discrimination on the basis of of sex. So when you really step back and think about all the challenges that African-American women in her era had to overcome, it's really, really something. It's clear from Stephen Carter's book, there were some models for this in her life. Her father was a well-respected activist working for the YMCA. Her mother, Addie, forged an iconoclastic path. A frustrated housewife, she moved the kids to Germany for a while. In 1916, she left her teenage children in America and joined the war effort overseas. She wrote a book about the experience. She was intersectional before that was a thing, giving speeches about how black women faced racism from white America and sexism from black men. She traveled across Ku Klux Klan territory on behalf of the NAACP, surely a frightening assignment. Eunice, too, made her own way, in a curious blend of privilege and constraint, fitting in and fighting back. She went to Smith College, finishing both a BA and an MA in four years. Calvin Coolidge, the future president, was an early mentor. She campaigned for Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia and, as a staunch Republican, for President Herbert Hoover. In 1934, she was invited to run for office herself by the Republican Party, at that time the Progressive Party of Racial Equality. She ran for state assembly but lost. When she went to law school at Fordham University in New York, it was while holding down a job at the Harlem Emergency Unemployment Relief Committee and raising a young child. Here's Robin Lenhart again. Her parents weren't wealthy, but they certainly were not poor. I think that that sense of obligation and desire to claim a space in the American story is is what I imagine drove her at that time. She was Eunice Carter by then. She'd married a successful dentist, Lyle Carter, and was living in a well-appointed home in Harlem, in the full swing of the Harlem Renaissance. Once a mostly white neighborhood, this area north of Central Park was now a hub of black community, culture, and intellectual life. Writers like Langston Hughes and Claude McKay were inventing a new literary vernacular. Duke Ellington and Louis Armstrong and Cab Calloway enthralled audiences in places like the Cotton Club. And salons and civil rights events flourished. Here's Robin Lenhart again. There was a kind of engagement and a kind of community that um, maybe not 
fully transcended class, but did to an extent that we don't talk about when we talk about sort of the Harlem of the 20th century and early 21st century. There was a kind of interaction that is an important part of the Harlem Renaissance story and of a movement for equality for African-Americans that is grounded in that that kind of interaction. My mother grew up very poor, lived her early life in Harlem, but there were community members who gave piano lessons to her sisters or helped out in different ways. The piano teacher for her sisters was Langston Hughes's aunt, and they would go by that house all the time. They'd see him. They'd talk with him. At one point, Stephen Carter points out in Invisible, the TV show Boardwalk Empire had a character who was a black female prosecutor. And some audiences responded that this would never have happened in that time. Of course, it did happen. But there are narratives of black life from that era that have faded, if not disappeared, from public view. I think that the sort of running narrative of blackness in America is of degradation, of poverty, of social defect, for lack of a better word. And I think that narrative gets reinforced in multiple ways. And because that's true, I think it's hard for people to imagine a different context or at least a more complex reality of blackness in the United States. Eunice Carter embraced the Harlem Renaissance scene. She hosted high society gatherings and gave speeches on civil rights. She tried her hand at literature and found herself published in the influential black journal Opportunity, alongside brilliant writers like Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes. She volunteered as an assistant at the Women's Court, where women's crimes were prosecuted. In 1935, she was appointed to a commission to understand the community's needs. And yet, there was another side to some of those stories. Carter became a lawyer at a time when many law schools simply didn't admit black students. Fordham, a Catholic university in New York with a sense of mission, was one of few that would have taken her. Jazz may have been a triumph of the black renaissance, but venues like the Cotton Club allowed only black musicians and waiters. No black guests. And the Harlem Commission came on the heels of the Harlem riot of 1935, an expression of a long-simmering rage over racial discrimination and economic marginalization that the city could no longer ignore. But then, in 1935, Eunice Carter was presented with an incredible opportunity, a spot on Thomas E. Dewey's elite team. Hey, I'm Kyle Fulton. I'm the producer of Power of One, and I wanted to tell you a bit about the latest season of Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan. He's not your typical hero, but the political fate of the nation rests in his hands. John Krasinski returns as the titular CIA officer in Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan. The latest season takes the former analyst to South America to solve a global conspiracy that spans the UK, Russia, Venezuela, and back home in the US. Follow along the action-packed mission in the new season, now available on Prime Video. It was 1935. 
Eunice Hunt and Carter had just joined Thomas Dewey's anti-rackets team. The campaign was a big deal. There are newsreels of the investigators at work, and the campaign figures in films about Dewey's life. Most often, what you see are the 19 men. If there was a black woman on the team who played an instrumental role, you would hardly know it from the public record. And if Carter started her new job with visions of working alongside her colleagues, following leads and cracking cases, she quickly learned it wasn't going to work like that. Soon after Dewey took the job, he made an appeal to New Yorkers. He was serious about fighting crime, and if they had information, leads, suggestions, ideas, they should come forward. Come forward, they did, and they were all sent to Eunice Carter. And there was one issue that overwhelmingly concerned them, prostitution. Ordinary New Yorkers weren't the only ones with thoughts on the subject. There were activists, including a group called the Committee of 14, that had collected a lot of information on sex work in New York. They had connections, and they insisted Dewey's team pick up their work on the prostitution file. Here's Ellen Polson, the author of the 2007 book, The Case Against Lucky Luciano. They were like sort of social society people, do-gooders, doubly do-rights, who formed committees to try to explore the social problems of women in trouble and girls gone wrong and all that kind of really dark ages stuff that women who lived outside the margins of polite society had to, you know, labor under labels like that. The Committee of 14 had compiled index cards and records, and uh, one of the things that she had to do was sort through those. Eunice Carter, in other words, was a one-person complaints department, a civic customer service desk. What better place could there be for a woman? She listened to people's rants and stories and took notes. She combed through the extensive records of the Committee of 14 and investigated them. She spoke with many sex workers. The lone woman on Dewey's team was stuck doing women's work on, essentially, the women's file. Here's what Stephen L. Carter told C-SPAN's Book TV. Her theory was the mob takes a cut of every other illegal activity in the city. It would be absurd that this multi-million dollar activity pays nothing to the mob. Long story short, she spent a lot of time alone in this office, and you can find in the records big heaps of files that were sent to her about prostitution that no one else was going to touch. Spent a lot of time with these files and actually finally put together uh, what she thought was a pretty good case uh, that the mob controlled prostitution. Eunice Carter was in fact immersed in the most fine-grained details about New York's sex trade, down to the names and addresses of the women who plied the trade, the women who ran the racket, the men who bailed them out, the courts they wound up in. Here's Ellen Poulsen again. A less well-known but very prevalent word for a gang in those days was a combination. So a bonding combination, to get even more deeper, was a group of men who worked in a bondsman's office, and they were there specifically to provide bail for prostitutes and madams. So the bondsmen were sitting literally physically across the street from the women's court. If this doesn't sound archaic, in the 1920s and 30s, there was a court in Manhattan specifically for sex crimes. And, of course, the defendants were all women. I mean, sometimes somebody would decide to be very revolutionary and bring in a couple of Johns, but not really. And the uh, 
bondsmen sat across the street and they bailed the women out. When Carter looked at those details, certain patterns began to emerge. The prostitutes, for instance, didn't work out of one place. They moved around. Many of them dealt with the same characters for their court appearances. She recognized one lawyer's name from her days in the women's court. Abe Karp represented many of the women, and he hadn't lost a case in months. Eunice Carter was finding support for her theory that, as her grandson writes in his book, the city's sex trade wasn't a scattering of small-time independent operators as it had been just a couple of years earlier. Someone had taken over the business and centralized it. And that someone, it stood to reason, was the mob. Carter began documenting what she was uncovering. She referred cases and wrote memos and more memos to her superiors. Records turned up by Stephen Carter and his daughter Leah Carter, also a lawyer, also a Yale Law School grad, this was truly a family project, revealed the response to those memos. Nothing. Zilch. It was clear that for Dewey, this was a minor file that didn't merit much attention. Here's Ellen Polson again, the author of The Case Against Lucky Luciano. Thomas E. Dewey started his campaign, I call it a political campaign, to bring prominent gangsters into the public eye in order to make himself appear to be a crime-busting politician, district attorney. I think he modeled his path to stardom on that of J. Edgar Hoover, because J. Edgar Hoover was in Washington, D.C., the director of the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, he built his reputation on the backs of gangsters in the Midwest, the the rural, more rural desperados. And when I say rural, I'm a New Yorker, so everybody like west of Jersey is rural. Dewey was not interested in prostitution as a crime. In fact, he was very concerned that the public would perceive him as a prude. Because in in the 1930s, prostitution was, I think, people looked the other way. There was a popular uh, sentiment in New York City that the city should create a red light district, uh, an official red light district. So uh, he was worried about the idea that people would think he was a petty individual looking to prosecute prostitution. It wasn't until the link was made that this could be used as a lever to bring Charlie Luciano to trial was when he developed an interest in it. Meanwhile, the other lawyers on Dewey's team had been preparing cases against mobsters, closing the net around their number one target, Dutch Schultz. Dutch Schultz was the Bronx-born gangster believed to be the head of the New York mob. He, not Luciano, was the Dewey team's singular focus, and they were getting closer to nabbing him. Then they hit a snag. In October of 1935, Dutch Schultz turned up in hospital riddled with bullet holes. He died the next day. Soon, Dewey had a new target, the man who seemed to step up to take his place, Charlie Luciano. Luciano was careful and strategic, though, and nearly impossible to connect to any racket. That's when Carter and her lone ally on the team, Murray Gerfine, brought Carter's prostitution case to Dewey. Dewey was still unexcited by the idea. The link to Luciano was not yet clear. He was too big to be running prostitution rings. Carter believed he had financial control, taxing this racket as he did any other. Dewey agreed to let her continue investigating, 
and he said yes, reluctantly, to wiretaps. Here's Ellen Polson, author of the Lucky Luciano story, on what happened next. Polson grew up in New York. Her father was a cop. As a kid, she says, she ironed his shirts and put the brass on the collars and listened to his stories. By age eight, she'd read all about the mobster John Dillinger. She worked as a court reporter before she began writing, traveling to university libraries and government archives for her research. You can tell she lives this stuff. A lot of what was compiled came from wiretaps. Like, for instance, they wiretapped the locations of Al Weiner, who was like a second-generation booker. And from wiretaps, they were able to get physical evidence in the form of transcripts of madams and bookers conversing at length and naming mostly names of the the girls. And I'm sorry, I should say sex workers, but I think girls sounds more, you know, more of the vernacular of the time. And they uh, were able to get so much from the wiretaps. And then, on February 1st, 1936, came the raids. One night, 41 raids, 160 police officers at intersections around the city, all striking at once. Carter led the operation, along with Gerfine. Though that wasn't the public narrative. Some version of these raids seems to form a scene in a campaign film for Dewey's later run for district attorney. Here's Dewey now. You can hear Eunice Carter, but fittingly, her back is to the camera. Is everything set? We've got a full list. Every gangster in the mob is being watched this minute. Any signs of leaks? They don't suspect a thing. Then it's 10 tonight. Pick up the 15 ringleaders first. Here are the sealed orders for the men. By design, the orders were sealed. As Stephen Carter writes in Invisible, the cops wouldn't get their instructions until just before the raids. The city was so corrupt that if they'd known what was coming, so would everyone else. They had it all set up. Eunice Carter was instrumental in syncing that with the detectives and the chief of police. And they went out to this multitude of addresses. And it wasn't like you got a a big sweep because these were all tiny little apartments. It wasn't like one knock on the door netted 30 screaming women. You know what I'm saying? It was a very compartmentalized and tiny operation that altogether amounted to something really big. So the police went into the buildings, and they were just regular apartment buildings, and uh, they staged these raids. And um, I'm sure the madams were completely taken by surprise because they had the cops paid off. You know, everything was done with payoffs. So this must have been a real shockeroo. And, you know, Johns were jumping out of fire escapes and running out of windows to get away. But they weren't looking for the men. They were just rounding up the women. And they brought them to a building called the Woolworths Building. It's still in Manhattan at one time. It was the tallest building, I think, in New York City. By then, the men who would normally bail them out had themselves been arrested. All these women who were picked up soon found out that they were not going to be getting out, that they were being held for something more important. And the bookers found out 
that they were going to be actually tried alongside of the boss, who was Lucky Luciano. So it was a very lucrative night for the office of Thomas E. Dewey. The Woolworth building was where their offices were located. Dewey's team now worked around the clock, and the building was guarded 24 hours a day, seven days a week. On another floor were some of the hundred-odd women they'd picked up on February 1st. The 20 against the underworld worked at interviewing the women, coaxing information out of them, chasing evidence to build the case against Luciano. They worked on the men, bookers, Luciano associates. They prepped the 68 witnesses who would eventually testify in court. And Eunice Carter was a key player. She oversaw the safety of the female suspects. She prepared exhibits for the trial. She interviewed informants, some of whom may have been women she'd been speaking to since her early days on the job, hearing and investigating complaints. In April 1936, in Hot Springs, Arkansas, Lucky Luciano himself was picked up. The trial, just six weeks later, was sensational. Luciano was not on trial alone, but with nine of his associates. Reporters swarmed the courthouse. The whole country was watching. Here's Ellen Poulsen on the spectacle inside the courtroom. And when these guys sat in the dock with Luciano, they were very rough around the edges. You know, maybe Charlie Lucky had cufflinks and manicured hands, but they didn't. And they were counting on the jury to look at these ruffians and say, oh, no, you know, these are true menaces to society. We have to convict. Luciano didn't help himself. He took the stand, and he was a terrible witness. At times, Dewey's merciless cross-examination reduced him to a courtroom joke. But really, the case turned on the women. It took a fearless female prosecutor relegated to the women's file, pursuing the angles no one else would, to bring down Luciano. And then the racket that brought down Charlie Luciano, the mob boss law enforcement couldn't touch, was prostitution a side note in his massive empire, the stuff of women's court. Then there was the fact that of the 68 witnesses who testified, only three could credibly tie anything directly to Luciano. And they were all women. They were madams or girlfriends of Luciano's associates, or both. The people who tagged along to meetings and were barely noticed by the men, but who were nonetheless listening. All ten defendants were found guilty. All ten went to prison. After the Luciano trial, Thomas Dewey went from one success to another. He burnished his reputation busting the so-called numbers racket in Harlem, a low-level illegal gambling business, again with Eunice Carter's help. He became district attorney, then governor, then ran for president against FDR and Harry Truman. Governor Thomas E. Dewey of New York, Republican nominee, reaches Oakland, California on his whirlwind campaign around the nation. Making a plea for world peace and striking at communist elements in government, the GOP leader draws big audiences. Next step is Portland, Oregon. Lucky Luciano didn't do too shabbily either. Here's Antonio Nicasso again, the mob expert and author. Originally from Calabria, Italy, he's a professor at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, though he spoke to us from Italy. Eleven years later, Lucky Luciano was released from prison and, uh, and he was deported to Italy. 
in exchange for his help in preventing problems on the New York City docks during the World War II. And so, again, he, his cunning, his intelligence, helped him to leave the United States and return to Italy, where he had an important role in putting together the Sicilian Mafia and the American Mafia into the new global uh, drug uh, trade. And I think uh, the fact that he spent only 11 years in prison, I think, was one of uh, his greatest achievements. Eunice Carter never got her due on the Luciano case. She had expected Dewey to prosecute the trial himself. Everyone had. But she could have been forgiven for hoping he might give her a small role in court. He didn't. Despite her critical work in building the case, weathering the skepticism of the whole team, Dewey picked other lawyers to assist at the trial. Here's Robin Lenhart, the Fordham Law Professor. It must have been so difficult for her and others of her generation, you know, knowing that you may play a role in something, you know, as significant as that prosecution, a meaningful role, a consequential role, but that you might never fully be acknowledged for it. Carter rose in the ranks as a prosecutor, becoming assistant DA and then head of special sessions under Dewey, a senior role. She remained active in the Republican Party She worked with the UN and UNESCO, and she was an important voice for women's rights and racial equality. But Robin Lenhart says she didn't know of Carter's work on the Luciano case till recently. Antonio Nicosa, too, the mob expert, only heard of Carter 10 years ago when a student asked to write a paper on her. I always thought that there was uh, Lucky Luciano versus uh, Thomas Dewey. I think it was what uh, everybody understood at the time. And you don't see any example in movies or other stuff of uh, this uh, important presence, this female lawyer who was the only female lawyer in the team of uh, Thomas Dewey. I think it has to do with the idea that uh, um, men were more important at that time, and they can get credit even though they were not the real players in some field. And then there were all those other women who, in a sense, helped Eunice Carter bring down Lucky Luciano. If Carter is a footnote in history, they may be the footnote to the footnote. That's a place women in the underworld often found themselves in, says Ellen Poulsen. The idea that they were such plastic characters like um, Lana Turner and the postman only rings twice, you know, never a hair out of place, that's the perception. And when you look at what happened to them, it's, um, it's pretty sad. I think the main thing to remember about women who were involved with criminals in the 1930s was that their constitutional rights were like zip. <laughs> I mean... They didn't have any. A lot of times, they'd have their sleazy underworld lawyer, they'd throw him a couple of dollars, and the guy would show up in court one day and say something like, oh, she loved the guy, what do you expect, you know? And then the next thing you know, these women are going away to federal prisons on harboring charges, and uh, there just wasn't any concept that they were entitled to counsel. 
Polson sees a real pathos in how the women in the Luciano case fared. Julie actually had nothing to connect Luciano to the bonding combination. But he had nothing to connect Luciano to anything. They didn't have anything that they could pin on him. They saw a vulnerability because these were women, you know, and a lot of these these um, sex workers, as we say today, were addicted to heroin. And many of them already had boyfriends in this bonding combination. They figured that they could get these women to talk, and if they worked on their vulnerabilities hard enough, they would get somebody to connect him to this syndicate. The truth is, many of the women picked up in that raid in the winter of 1936 were used to being exploited. Most hadn't chosen to get tangled up with the mob. They were small-time operators, sole proprietors, if you will, forced into a ruthless corporate structure when the gangsters arrived. They didn't have pimps. They didn't have a man that they had to answer to. And they worked independently until about 1934 when these guys would knock on the doors with lead pipes and say, you're going to join the combination or else. And one woman went on the witness stand to relay how the combination came in. They busted her with lead pipes set fire to her apartment. Their lives didn't get easier after the trial. Their names alone say a lot. Cokie Flo, Jenny the Factory, Red Sadie. Many of them had started out with little and then taken some wrong turns. Most never found their way back. Some of the women went into Chinatown and got themselves dolled up as um, Asian women with um, makeup to give them the appearance of an Asian woman and the uh, Mandarin collars, like those type of outfits, and uh, maybe maybe a short little haircut. And they posed as Asian women living in Chinatown to uh, escape the mob. It was not an easy era to be a woman, underground or above ground. Certainly it was not an easy era in which to be black and a woman. And yet, for Eunice Hunt and Carter... Neither was a sentence to a life of insurmountable constraint. That's what's so stirring about her story. Three of her grandparents were slaves. Stanton Hunton had to buy his liberty from his owner before building a life of freedom in Ontario. His son became an internationally known activist for racial equality. His granddaughter defeated America's most influential mob boss and was a voice for social justice. Their descendants continue the tradition. It's hard to know what blend of intellect, discipline, education, community, religious faith, and sheer human will made that possible. And of course, it shouldn't take a miraculous set of conditions for a person to succeed. Who knows how many more Eunice Carters we'd have without such barriers, then and now. Still, the message of Carter's story was, it's possible. Even against those odds, it's possible. Here's Robin Lenhart again. I don't think that people of her generation ever thought they couldn't. You know, sort of what's the alternative? They overcame many obstacles, and I don't think they ever thought stopping is something I can do. And they realized there's, <laughs> we've seen the worst. <laughs> Slavery's over. You know, what can we make of this life? 
concludes Season 1 of The Power of One. The Power of One is brought to you by McLean's in partnership with the Frequency Podcast Network. It's written and co-produced by me, Sarmishta Subramanian. Our producers this week are Stephanie Phillips and Annalisa Nielsen. Michael Friscalanti Chase produced and contributed editorial support. Our researcher is Patricia Treble. Special thanks to Charlie Gillis, Jordan Heath Rawlings, and Milena Boscovic. Audio credit for this episode goes to C-SPAN, A&E Biography, HBO, AP Archives, and the Library of Congress. If you liked what you heard, leave us a rating on iTunes. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Download a new weekly episode of The Power of One, brought to you by the latest season of Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, only on Prime Video.